This episode is sponsored by National Treasures Artists in Residence. National Treasures funds artist participation in artists in residence programs during their twilight years. They also forge mentorships so that expertise honed over years will be passed along one-on-one to a younger generation of artists and memorialized in a digital library. Visit nationaltreasuresair.org. On this episode, we have John Sillings. John started his career as an equity research analyst working for hedge funds. After several years, he discovered a love for collecting art. He chose to follow his passion and co-founded Art in Res, a platform to purchase art with installment payment plans. He recently completed the Startup Accelerator program at Y Combinator. John, thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks so much for having me. So you are uh, connected to us now. Where exactly? What part of the world are you in? Um, I am in a town called Cobleskill in upstate New York, uh, west of Albany. So this is where um, you're doing your quarantine. This is where I'm quarantining. This is where I'm working. I have high speed internet. It's a fine remote setup for me right now. That's great. Yeah, otherwise, you're in uh, normally you're in Brooklyn. Yeah, normally we're in Brooklyn, although the team is sort of dispersed right now. So, um, you know, it's it's been an interesting uh, several months. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, did you grow up in upstate New York? Uh, I grew up in what upstaters call downstate New York. Uh, so I grew up outside of New York City. Okay, gotcha. And that's where you were born and, and raised, high school, everything. Yeah, I pretty much spent my entire life around the sort of like New York City metro area until really recently when uh, we went through Y Combinator. That was the first time I really lived outside of the New York City area, actually. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. That's right, because you started at Hamilton College and then went to NYU. Yeah, I transferred to NYU actually to pursue a career in stand-up comedy. That was my... Oh, wow. Yeah, that was my dream as a uh, 19-year-old college student. <laughs> and what prompted that interest uh, growing up? Who were some of your idols? Um, share with us about that. Well, I think I sort of had a, I think it may have been some sort of like philosophical relationship with the world or something like that, wanting to sort of like unpack and understand things mm. uh, that made stand up so appealing to me, like, especially like the joke writing um, process and just sort of like observational, analytical kind of relationship with the world. Um, but I'm a pretty lousy stand-up and, and it's like an incredibly meritocratic uh, career. So, you, you know, it's, it's like, it's one of the most brutal art forms because if you are not good at it, mm. it is very obvious. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and what, what do you I, think I, it was about it that um, it, where you didn't feel like you were doing well? I'm not a very performative person. I have so much respect for people who like can really thrive in the spotlight. Um, I'm good under pressure, I think, but I, I really like do not, I'm not in my element on stage. <laughs> I think I've ever been. So that was, that gotcha. was the problem, I think. Gotcha. All right. Um, what kinds of things were you reading, um, growing up, like in high school? Um, I was really into evolutionary biology and that sort of like, oh, uh, I, I guess that, that subject broadly and biology in general. Um, I didn't study it in school or anything like that. I, I, I studied economics and philosophy, but um, 
I loved The Selfish Gene. It's still probably one of my favorite books of all time. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah and when you, as soon as you said it, uh, Carl Sagan's uh, Brocco's Brain came to mind. Yeah, I love Carl Sagan. I, I'm like, I, I used to just devour stuff like that Amazing. in high school and college. And I still really like it. I wish I had more time for sort of fun reading. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, are your parents uh, scientists or in scientific professions? Uh, no, my mom is a teacher. Um, she taught special education and now she teaches Italian. Uh, my dad is um, an investor. He, he works in the debt markets though. Okay. So never something I had much like interest or experience with. Very like, um, I don't know. He, he's much more like conservative in his like investing lens. And I, I prefer to be more like aggressive in risk taking. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Excellent. Um, while at NYU, you connected with Mitchell Stevens. Yes. Share yeah, with Mitch, us about that. Mitch is one of the most incredible people I've ever met. He is, um, he's, he's extremely smart, extremely well-read, but like the thing that really just made me so happy and like honored to be a, a mentee of his is really just his his sort of like temperament so a lot of the stuff i was consuming in college and high school in terms of like reading and media and stuff like that was like super opinionated stuff i mean like richard dawkins for instance like to take an example from the selfish gene like kind of a brash person and like i think as a young man like that that kind of like affect was really appealing to me and like really like debating things and, and being sort of like confrontational and stuff. Um, Mitch really like tempered a lot of that kind of like that, that sort of like polemic or like argumentative style. And I think that was like, it, it's something that he's really good at is, is just like be having really sort of calm analytical style that results in like just really thought out nuanced uh, views on things. So I still talk to him pretty often. I have like so much respect for him. And, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to work on a few books with him too. That's great. Yeah. He's a journalism professor at NYU. Yeah. He's a journalism professor and he's, he's sort of written on a, a very wide range of, of topics. The, the biggest book project we worked on together was the, uh, uh, it's a book called beyond news about the future of journalism, okay. which was, um, pretty timely, actually, because it was sort of like this was sort of when blogging was more in its heyday, right. and um, you had these sort of like independent journalists producing like really high high quality content for free. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So, um, uh, you co-authored a book, or so, a few books? Sounds like no, no, not a co-author, just a, a researcher. Gotcha. Okay, and you didn't want to pursue that track. Because after you graduated, you became a, an equity research analyst. Yeah, well, I guess I I, I, re I really did like the research process in general. Okay. Um, that was mostly uh, a decision based on just like needing money to support myself. Right. <laughs> so I can identify um, with that. <laughs> no shame in that. <laughs> uh, but it was still a job I really liked. I mean, it, it was actually kind of similar. Like I got to read very widely and get paid for it 
which was really nice. I mean, yeah. kind of a dream job, actually, on, at least on paper. Right, right. And, and I, I seem to have taken note of three different firms, U.S. Trust, which you were at the longest, and then is it uh, Lagoda Investment Management, and then mm-hmm. Karani? Yes. Yeah, so I had a sort of like, this, this may be like a, a thing that I just like didn't do well as a, as an employee, but I never really interviewed past that like first round of interviews. I, I um, got that first job at us trust. Uh, I was an assistant. So I was like making copies and stuff like that. I was actually reading a book about um, evolutionary biology. Uh, it was a book called the handicap principle. Really, really fantastic book actually. Uh, that explains why like there are like some counterintuitive um, behaviors and sort of like physical features of certain animals that you'd think like a, like a peacock, for instance, having like a giant plume, why would that yeah. be an evolutionary advantage? So I was reading this book um, and I was working on my own sort of like thing and someone in the firm saw me reading it and they were like, oh, what's that about? And we got chatting and they were like, oh, you seem like a reasonably smart guy why don't you come work with me as a as an analyst oh, wow. so I, I just got promoted for like literally just um i don't know making a good impression on someone basically that's great pursuing then, your hobby uh, and you got promoted yeah <laughs> um and then they split off and and founded uh lagoda which was kind of more of like a, a hedge fund type environment yeah um, and then i worked there for a while and then karani split off from lagoda so that was oh, a wow. sort of, okay. Yeah, it was a matryoshka doll ish kind of like relationship <laughs> between. That is so well said. Brilliant. Oh, I love that. Um, what types of companies did you research, or did you have a, an industry that you focused on? Um, I didn't. So I was a generalist. So I got to I got to pretty much like look at every industry, and I thought that was great. Uh, I really loved it, but I definitely gravitated toward the the biotech and healthcare type stuff. I really love that. Well, there's the evolutionary biology appearing again. Yeah. Yeah. I got to, so I really enjoyed the reading there. Um, also the, the value of, of that work in that industry was very obvious and exciting to me. Um, and then the other, the other industry that I love was tech. Yeah. Nice. And you were supporting uh, portfolio managers or traders in their, uh, trading activity. Yeah, there were two PMs, uh, and then there was one other analyst with me, and and we ran about a uh, billion dollars on a, a long only strategy. Gotcha. Oh, very interesting. So, um, even while you were at Karani Asset Management, you began. If the timelines are syncing up, you began thinking about Art and Res. So, share with us how that came to be, and how you met your partner John, and. Um, some of the others uh, involved with Arden Res. Sure. Yeah. So I was working at actually Lagoda. Arden Res started as a. Um, it was actually kind of a re- result of two things. Uh, the first thing was that I had gone on my first studio visit ever, which was nothing short of a mind blowing experience for me. Yeah. Um. I was aware that there were working artists in the world and I always sort of hung out with an artistic set. Um, but I'd never been in an artist studio before. And I, I met this artist in a bar and I went to his, his studio and I was just like completely blown away by how many 
paintings were just basically all over the place. Yeah. Like it was, it was just crazy to me that someone could be living in this like, you know, pretty small, modest New York city apartment in Bushwick and have like a hundred paintings just like everywhere. <laughs> um, and I was really excited to, to buy my first paintings cause I'd never, oh, fantastic. yeah, I was, I, I really thought like, you know, uh, maybe when I'm 40, maybe when I'm 50, you know, I can own an original piece of art and it'll be like $10,000 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wasn't actually sure what to expect, but I, I, I paid a lot less than that. So. <laughs> um, what was the artist's name? Uh, his name is Jesse Ruiz, really talented artist. Um, we're still friends. Uh, so that was, that was the first thing that sort of like opened my eyes to, here's a thing that I just sort of like, always considered inaccessible um but it's not yeah and then the other thing that that was really important was i was reading about libraries just kind of for fun and um there's this library in pennsylvania that rents out artwork or lends out artwork um that they own or they rent it from a company they own it okay so they have a community of artists in this neighborhood that that basically donates art to the the library and then they lend it out to their library patrons. <laughs> Which town like, oh, of Pennsylvania is that? Because I studied there. I don't remember, but it was I I, I did look it up however many years ago. And <laughs> right. It looked like it was a pretty nice neighborhood. Yeah. A nice town in PA. So that was the other thing that was like, you know, there was that artist studio with all those paintings in there and they're just sort of like sitting around and he, he said he was having you know some trouble selling them maybe he could lend them out and people would you know mm. would sort of like try them in their homes and fall yeah. in love with them yeah so that was the that was the first version of art and resin i became so obsessed with this idea it was just like a complete compulsion um i had to build it it was like all i thought about uh, I would work my full day at the office. I would come home and then I would basically work until I fell asleep. Wow. Uh, and I only really quit my job after it got so intense with all the work that like, I wasn't really, I couldn't even really like stay awake at my job anymore because I was just like <laughs> working too late at night. Um, so I was like, okay, like I, it's time to, I owe it to my, my bosses and my, who have been, who have always treated me really well and myself to, to pursue this full time. Wow. And so, um, how many months did you spend doing the, the moonlighting thing before you said, okay, I got to just jump off the cliff? Well, so it, it, I guess it was probably a year and we, we really like, it, it was sort of like a lot of like discussions, a lot more like talking about like what, what the thing was going to be for probably six months and then, and then really getting into gear for six months and, and grinding hard on an MVP, which we really had to like cheat the supply side of the market um, in order to, you know, get the, get the marketplace started. So that was, that was like a very big undertaking too, in addition to like building the tech. And then John Friel, who you asked about earlier, that was, we had, I, I sort of engaged him pretty early on because um, we were always friends. We, we'd been friends for like seven years at that point. And he is, he, he just like 
there are like three main reasons. Number one, he's a fabulously talented technologist. Mm. Uh, so I was really interested in, in working with him on the MVP. Uh, number two is he's also a fabulously talented artist right. uh, who went to SAIC, which is a, a great art school. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then number three, he's extremely like um, incisive and skeptical sort of by nature. So I was like, if this is a bad idea, <laughs> I trust that John Friel will be very equipped to, to tell me so. He will tell you, yeah. Um, yeah. And he, he was actually really pretty into it. I mean, he, he certainly had his questions, but like he, he believed in it too. So, That's uh, so yeah, we, we started it together sort of from the jump. Um, you mentioned something earlier about cheating the supply side. Um, did I hear that right? And if you'd yeah. share more about that, because supply side are your artists. Yes. Yeah. So we felt pretty strongly. And if we were to build art and res again, I, I think we would, maybe we would approach this differently, but we felt pretty strongly that we needed to have a sort of like base level um, roster of artists and inventory to really validate the idea or not. Uh, the tricky thing was that we like had nothing. <laughs> so, you know, we were going to these artists and we had, you know, a homepage that was sort of thrown together and messaging that, you know, was unoptimized to put it euphemistically. And like, we just didn't really have much. We didn't really have, John Friel had some art world cred, but I didn't really have any. Um, so it was pretty important to, to talk to those artists, those initial artists, go to their studios. Uh, we went on so many studio visits. Me, John Friel, uh, Noni, who's one of the partners, uh, and Michael Klein, who was one of the, the founding partners, the four of us going to lots of artist studios and, mm -hmm. and talking to them, um, showing them that we were, could be trusted with their artwork, uh, and sort of selling them on the value prop. So when we launched, I think we had 30 artists and uh, 150 artworks, okay. something like that. That's a pretty decent start, yeah. Yeah. When you took the leap from um, uh, equity research, um, were you, you must have been revenue positive at that time. You were earning uh, revenue. We had a little bit of revenue, but, but really not much. Gotcha. Uh, it, was, it was much more just my unchecked optimism that <laughs> made me feel like I could do that. You know, it's an essential ingredient to be a successful entrepreneur. No matter what anyone else sees, if you <laughs> believe it, you have to, that's a, that's, it's critical. Yeah. How many, I, people, how many people criticized Elon Musk and look what he just did. I hope so. It's, it's, <laughs> I think it is one of my more salient personality features is that I, I, I am a very optimistic person um, when it comes to just like believing in myself or, or believing in, uh, an idea working. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, I, I sort of like the mental model I have with respect to entrepreneurship is sort of um, being able to balance a certain degree of arrogance and a certain degree of humility. Arrogance that, you know, this, this new idea could work and the world has sort of been missing out on this thing the whole time, but humility because you inevitably get so many things wrong that, that you need to be able to course correct like constantly. 
Well, that, those are exactly the essential elements. Um, but share with me about uh, these other two partners, um, Nani and Michael. Uh, yeah, so Noni and Michael, sorry, Noni. personal relationships, um, Noni, my wife, Michael. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's a personal friend. relationship. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Michael has a very sort of like, Michael is an art appreciator and art collector in his personal life. Uh, Noni is an artist. She's, she's actually yeah. sort of like a, a consummate artist. Yeah. What's um, her medium? She, she's a, a singer, a songwriter, uh, oh. video producer, okay. um, actress. Nice. And then, and, and Michael is actually a, a screenwriter too. Oh, so they're both in the entertainment space. Yeah. So three out of the four founding partners are, are artists in a very meaningful capacity. And, and, you know, I guess if you consider my sort of like failed foray into stand up, <laughs> maybe you know maybe i get an asterisk that so um you reach a certain stage of, of growth and then um you decide an accelerator route is a good way to go um what was that decision matrix like um it was pretty funny actually because we always sort of like since our inception talked about how amazing it would be to go through y combinator and we, we had so much respect for for the program and the people involved um but we also sort of always felt like it was too early. Like we hadn't really made enough progress or we hadn't really like cracked the thing yet. And that, well, why would we apply now? You know, if we, we should do another six months of grinding and then reconsider. Um, when it, it was this right before this last batch, uh, the winter 2020 batch, uh, during that application cycle, we we were sort of telling ourselves the same things, and um, an advisor friend of us, uh, Will Megson, who who runs a, a sort of identity and credit card verification startup, who had just been through the program, he was like, "You guys should really consider applying." And we were like, "Oh, I don't know," you know. Told him the thing, and he was like, "No, you just just do it." So we pulled together this like eleventh hour application, like with like we submitted it. I think the night of the deadline, um, you know, we did the best job we could. Uh, and we couldn't believe when we got the interview. But then when we got the interview, it was like, it was game on. Like we, we were not gonna squander the, the chance, so. Nice. And so describe the, the experience of uh, heading out to San Francisco and uh, the months that you were living there and um, what you experienced, uh, some big takeaways, and then eventually the, the pivot to how you've altered your business model. Um, so yeah, I think I think one of the biggest things that we changed immediately was prioritizing talking to our customers in like a whole new way. Gotcha. Um, that was critical to uh, really understanding what was going on in a, in a much more meaningful way. So we we had gotten into Y Combinator as this sort of like rent the runway for fine art business. Um, we had some revenue, we had customers, we felt like we had some early validation, but it was pretty clear that you know, we, we were a ways away from, from product market fit. So we, we sort of thrashed around for a bit, uh, probably for like the first like month and a half of the programs. Then we did a, a survey about halfway through the batch. And, and by the way, the whole time we're, you know, getting this like incredibly insightful feedback from, uh, Michael Seibel and, and Aaron Epstein were the two partners in particular that like really seemed to 
um, they spent the most time with us and, and, and they seemed really invested in us. So, so both incredibly smart, effective people. So really lucky to just sort of like be able to check in with them at every, every kind of turn as we're, you know, doing all this experimentation and, and, and kind of like hurtling toward demo day. Um, we, we found a pretty interesting thing out when we did a, a survey with our users about halfway through the batch or maybe even two thirds of the way through the batch where we found that with our rental product, a lot of people were kind of jerry-rigging it to buy the art and installments. Mm-hmm. So like our whole value proposition was, you know, you're new to buying art and we're a company that, that makes art collecting accessible so you can try it on your wall before you buy it. And this cohort of users never had any intention of trying the artwork or returning it. They were just looking to, to basically finance it. Um, and that was really a major light bulb moment. Uh, we, that, that was a super strong data point. So we, we did this sort of like, you know, a, a pretty, as, as one of the YC partners, uh, Gustav would call it a, a big swing moment mm-hmm. where we just sort of like revamped everything. We like changed our entire homepage. We changed all of our messaging. And then we were like, okay, this is about buying art and installments. Um, and the, traction we got was we pretty much sold as much artwork in like a two-week period as we did in like the entire like previous nine months (laughs) so we're like okay i think this is this is a a strong (laughs) signal this is the right way to swing yeah um so taking the big swing was also a thing that I think we would have deliberated on way more if it was just sort of like us working in isolation, but we felt very supported and um, empowered in the context of YC and and also, you know, demo day uh, having to show results was like a major forcing function for us too. No, that's great. Uh, And then COVID happened. Right. uh, Which I don't know if you want to get into. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, because I think it's a a positive uh, story in that um, you've, your sales have held up and have even increased. Yeah, we've, we've been growing. It's, it's hard to say how much of it is, is due to COVID and how much of it is is in spite of COVID, but um, we're posting really solid growth. We're, we're happy about that. And we do hear from some of our users that sort of like being trapped in their homes uh, during quarantine has sort of, um, forced them to like realize how drab their (laughs) homes are and how nice it would be to have some, some beautiful artwork. Uh, so, so that's at least one thing that, that has been a tailwind for us. And also Um, not, not everybody likes to have the virtual zoom background because they still haven't figured out the technology yet. It looks bad, right? Yeah. (laughs) Like, Go and eat it out. So let's just put a nice piece of artwork behind us and go go natural. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fun when we do user interviews with our users to see art and res pieces in the background of their shot, and and you know people are invariably um, proud of proud to own a, a beautiful piece of art, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a nice thing for sure. Yeah, um, but yeah, the 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 downside of it was that YC got cut short basically yeah uh demo day was a sort of like virtual um website based thing rather than 
you know, getting up on stage and, and getting to like talk to a bunch of investors. Uh, and the fundraising environment was not, was, was suboptimal basically. Sure. sure. Yeah. Um, well, that's understandable, but, um, uh, hopefully, um, I mean, things are, will, will be shifting and there, there's, a, I think you're showing strong metrics. And so, um, I think that uh, investment activity has slowed down some, particularly there's a lot of people in a position where they have to sort of put their existing portfolio on a bit of life support and, and kind of make those uh, somewhat Darwinian decisions of which ones are you going to prop up, which ones are you just going to let go. Um, but uh, I think for clever concepts, there's always a demand and a desire. So um, it might just take a little more time. Um, in terms yeah, to, of during the to sort of ex- to sort of extend the uh, the sort of like um, evolution metaphor there too, like I think I think one advantage we've always had being a team of of artists uh, with me as the sort of like non artist exception um, is that we've always been sort of like really comfortable with a, a, a cockroach mode. Yeah. So one thing that like you know certain species do really well is just like low resource consumption <laughs> to stay alive. And, uh, that, that's something that we, we feel pretty like comfortable with. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we're not too far away from being able to self fund and, and that's, that's an exciting that, a milestone for us. I, it is a funny idea that popped in my head. Just noticing this at uh, Trader Joe's, like low resource consumption. Everyone's basket, without fail, has alcohol in it. <laughs> it's a, I never noticed that much in the past, but I'm like, these people are like cases of stuff where usually it's just like a bottle or two. <laughs> it's really funny. So, John. What milestones would you like to see Art in Res hit before you personally, John, deems it a success? Um, it's really hard to say because as excited as I am about sort of like the near future, um, the goal for Art in Res has always been to be a huge globally impactful business. There are so many talented artists in the world who don't have representation that it's it's actually pretty hard to imagine myself being like really satisfied at any one point. I mean, the being able to just sort of like sustain ourselves indefinitely is, is definitely the near term milestone that that we're all focused on. Um, but I don't. It's it's actually really really hard for me to imagine being satisfied knowing that there. Are, tens hundreds of millions of artists out there who uh we could work with to help them sell their work to new collectors and and also on on the sort of like demand side of things like hundreds of millions billions of people who you know don't think art collecting is a thing that they can do that uh don't realize that it's actually like an extremely fulfilling and exciting uh, hobby and a way to support artists and um, a way to live in a beautiful space and you know there there's so many good things about it so uh, yeah we're we're pretty like you know we have pretty big ambitions and and um, I don't know I don't I don't want to paint myself as a sort of like this 
eternally unsatisfied person or something like that. But, you know, I'll be happy as, uh, you know, my, my happiness sort of tracks to working with more artists and selling more art and, and basically having an impact that way. Nice. No, I think that's uh, great and admirable. And uh, um, you're staying close to the the passion and, and adding value there. And I think that's going to be um, critical to your success. Um, so, no, that's great. John, it's been a great conversation. It really has. I, I really appreciate the questions. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 of the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy and editing provided by Neil Sherman. Mm-hmm.